That's well, a joke, yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with my friend, Elizabeth Aida, whose work I've known, I guess, for over 10 years, but I don't see very often, so it's really a delight to be with you here in Oslo. How are you, Elizabeth? Oh, I'm fine, and it's delightful to see you here in Oslo. It's not the best of seasons, but still. <laughs> yes, it's February, if anybody happens to listen to this at a later date. And... You were just saying to me before we started recording that if one were to sum up your work, it would probably involve words like, and perhaps even this particular syntam, media and marginalization. Yeah, actually you could say it started uh, almost 10 years before I became a media scholar. I was working as a journalist uh, by then. I was in Paris and I was supposed to interview uh, Simone de Beauvoir. That didn't work out because she was living for uh, England. I should be glad because I hadn't read enough of her. <laughs> but by then, I was a young journalist. Uh, uh, as a compensation, another friend uh, gave me the name of another female writer whose name was Catherine Riwa. And she had just published a book on um, called Le Bal de Débutants, which was about a man who changed gender to woman. And uh, therefore, he was a débutant, you can say, <laughs> in that sense. And he discovered how much more discriminated upon he suddenly was by being a woman. Uh, mm. She, then, rather. Right. Uh, and Catherine Riwa, she also uh, said one more thing. She said that um, if uh, somebody from Mars, a being from mm. Mars, mm. landed on planet Earth and was immediately shut into a room where it was given uh, a bunch of newspapers, this being would conclude, after having studied these newspapers, that about 90% of the beings on Mother Earth would be male. Men, yeah. And that was uh, intriguing to me. I hadn't thought about it that way. So when I entered uh, the academic world kind of uh, as a late bloomer, you may say, in the end of the 1980s, uh, my first project would be on uh, media and gender and uh, uh, discovering uh, what Catherine Riwa had already told me but I was to give it a more manifest conclusion mm. by uh, researching six different newspapers uh, over a time span of 10 years and uh, also interviewing quite a lot of journalists and editors about equal rights and equal representation mm. in the media. And the conclusion was this glass ceiling that everybody talks about uh, or have talked about for decades now. It was there certainly in Norway as well. It was real. It was real, yeah. And later I uh, started investigating media representation of the so-called non-Western world together with a colleague, Anne Heger. And we also looked at, uh, in a hundred year span, in Norwegian newspapers on how media, how these newspapers had represented uh, ethnic minorities, mm. both indigenous, old minorities like Norwegian Jews and uh, uh, Roma people, etc., mm, mm. but also the uh, more recent uh, minorities uh, migrating to Norway as work uh, migrants from the 1970s and as refugees from Chile, Vietnam, uh, later on Afghanistan and a lot of other countries. So that was then also quite intriguing to see how uh, we could discover uh, how much the ethnic background was highlighted in the media as... Uh, contrasting with, uh, let's say, uh, more a normalization of their role in Norwegian society as professions, as workers, as fathers, as uh, yeah, opinionated people. Mm, mm. So, uh, yeah, and then I've done some work on um, uh, 
representation of the disabled. That was more of a coincidence because there was a call for uh, researcher groups to do this. And that this came. is where you're told you'll get money, and then you think, how do I get the money? A <laughs> little bit like that. We were in the, there was a competition. Uh, we were three or four, who were, and we got the final deal. It wasn't a very rich deal, <laughs> I can say that much. But we were a team, and mm. that's another experience which I love to, uh, to talk about. That is how mm -hmm. much we are able here in this institution to involve our students in the work. Because in this project, then, where we were to investigate over a time span of 20 years, the representation of uh, uh, people with disabilities in the Norwegian media. We researched uh, eight newspapers, and uh, I had two bachelor students, two master students on the team, and two other senior researchers. And it was a great team, and we don't uh, believe in so much hierarchy. You know? mm. I mean, we, mm. we play along fairly easy with each other. So, so that was been a very nice experience. And we just delivered the report now, and it didn't get enormous press uh, um, coverage, but it got some. And... Uh, and the people from the rank and file of people uh, of organization for the people with disabilities were rather content. They were happy. Um, yeah. What were some of the findings in the report that you could share with us? Uh, the findings, one of the most important findings was actually that uh, there had been a decline mm. in the representation from a rather marginal position to begin with, but to an even more marginal position in uh, 2013. And... Uh, to our surprise, also, the decline was uh, not in all the newspapers. We had four nationwide newspapers and four uh, who were local and uh, regional newspapers. Mm. But in the nationwide newspapers, uh, the decline was really significant. And we wondered why. And uh, we had a conference where one of the, uh, the editor of the largest newspaper, she recently resigned, she said, well, you know, there are so many other groups competing and we have mm. concentrated mm. more on ethnic minorities or on the Muslims or religious minorities. So it seems that they perceive this as a competition between various marginalized groups, in a sense. And and then the disabled people seem to be on the losing end of that. So there's got to be a women's page, a disabled page. <laughs> We're not going back to that, I believe. But it, that is very interesting. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, Elizabeth, about this institution. You mentioned it in positive terms, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense of this flatness of hierarchy mm -hmm. that exists in the yeah. research team. Yeah. Can you? I mean, we're in Oslo. We're not just in Oslo. We're no. in a very particular. Institute. We're in, I'm going to say the full name now, we're in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the Oslo and Akershus University College for Applied Sciences. I think I said it 98% correct. Good grief. <laughs> yeah, it takes some exercise, you can imagine. Is it, is it more letters in Norwegian than in English or the same number? <laughs> well, we have three more, you know that. We have the O slash and we have the uh, A ring and a we ring. have the, uh, the A. Now, uh, from joke to uh, more sincere matters, I think, um, I, I mean, I've been around for a long time, uh, 25 years of journalism education by now. And uh, I remember when we were uh, still situated outside this big conglomerate of uh, previously autonomous institutions, we were the Norwegian School of Journalism. And uh, we sort of every week we had a meeting where we all sort of decided what to do next, more or less. I mean, mm -hmm. It was a very flat structured nice. institution. Yeah. It was nice. I think we all felt we had a say. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so when we entered these uh, larger institutions, we at times have, I think, felt a bit overwhelmed by bureaucracy and by institutional constraints, while on the other side, uh, we got more options uh, with the research and uh, doing our uh, theses and so on and so forth. We got, in uh, short, uh, more uh, academic. Mm 
for the some benefits, maybe there's some losses involved in that as yeah. well. <laughs> but uh, what is fu- nice about us is that uh, I'd say like 80% are uh, people who have uh, experiences from the journalist trade. Mm. Uh, I myself have been a journalist, I've been an editor as well uh, of a magazine, and uh, most of the others have that experience. And I think that gives us some uh, common denominator uh, when we stick together as friends, but it also gives us some credibility faced with the students who come here. And with the industry itself? I think so too, although the industry has always been ambiguous in their role towards uh, uh, the uh, educational institutions, since they sometimes believe that in-house training is the easiest way because then they're more able to shape the journalists according to their own media house expectations. Indoctrinate them. Well, that's your words, but yes, uh, shape and indoctrinate <laughs> comes out much the same, well, doesn't it? I guess, because for some people that's about practical training, mm-hmm. and for others it's about ideological narrowing, and it might be both. It might, and uh, what's in between there is, of course, uh, what uh, I just lectured about now, uh, the critical attitude. I mean, it takes... I've been teaching also abroad. I was in Iraq last year in, uh, in the Kurdish part, the peaceful part, I've been to Afghanistan, I've been to Vietnam and other places. And what is often not so developed, and also here, is mm, the mm. what does it really mean to analyze critically mm. both uh, the trade that you're doing, both the content of what is produced as media output, and your own particular role yeah. as a journalist. Yeah. And I think that is not so easy to learn in-house, because... Uh, mm. What people report from in-house is that when they do something good, it's it's a slap on the shoulder, and if they do something bad, it's more or less a well, a symbolically slap in the face. I mean, you don't get much words attached to those slaps. I think that there's is not a lot of reflection. Well, no, you know, there's exactly. also the first precept of journalism for many is don't make yourself the story. Mm-hmm. You mustn't be the story. Mm. Of yeah. all the people I do these podcasts with, the most difficult are those who are currently journalists. Mm. Getting them to reflect, in most cases, if they've become academics, Mm. but they still do journalism, they're fine. They don't mind talking about, I did this and I did that, Mm. and we thought this and we were trying to do Mm. that. But people who are actually journalists still, and that's their only thing, Mm. you can see it in their eyes all the time. This isn't meant to be about me. This isn't meant Mm. to be about me. No matter how gigantic their egos may be. Now, it's, it's ambiguous again, I think, but uh, people like Jane Kramer, who has written a lot for The New Yorker, for example, she uh, has spoke, been very outspoken about not having an eye in the way she writes yeah. and uh, yeah. putting her very much aside. Tom Wolfe also says the eye is the most boring element of a story, it shouldn't be there. Others have uh, very different uh, attitudes about it, so I... Um, but I think uh, regardless of uh, this uh, putting yourself in the story, it could be about something else. Uh, but I think today uh, there's something with how uh, the media also promotes certain journalist egos as a part of their commercial uh, value, or their commercial, let's call it, uh, yeah, uh, advertisement, mm. so to say. So we have this and this writing for us. So it's not always the... Uh, the person, it's, it could be the institutionalized yeah. uh, uh, lack of ethos, if you like. For sure. Now, you just mentioned Afghanistan, Elizabeth, where I know you've spent quite a bit of time over mm-hmm. the years, and I think you whispered to me, as it were, that you have a book coming out in a month. 
Yes, that's true. I've been writing this together with my husband. I've been traveling a lot in Afghanistan. Who's a lovely man too, I should say. <laughs> yeah, he's nice, yeah. And he's an historian, so he takes part of uh, the Greek Bactrian uh, periods, for example, and all the invasions. Most people maybe know more about the Soviet and U.S. invasions than they know about the numerous other invasions that this country has been subject to, which is a lot. But the experience from there... I think when I first met with uh, an Afghan milieu, I was uh, living in Peshawar, Pakistan, which is 40 kilometers from the Afghan border, and this is like 25 years ago, I thought that more remote from the Norwegian culture you can't possibly be. And then I thought, no, this is not true after a while. This is sort of the, uh, uh, when you look at the surface, because I think having uh, traveled further east, that it's more, uh, the uh, Vietnamese who might be more modern and all, they're less easy to understand, for example. I don't know why that is, but I mean, with Afghans, something with the language is within the Indo-European family, and it's uh, maybe also something with the way you meet people after a while. I mean, the first thing you see is an enormous amount of female uh, tent garb, you know, light blue burqas, as they're called, which is different from the hijab. I mean, you hardly see anything of the woman. But once you uh, learn about uh, who's uh, underneath those uh, light blue tents, you learn that you can uh, have a lot of commonalities. You can speak the same language about, for example, uh, well, your experiences with men, with oppression, with um, having a child. I had a child who was one years old when I was living in Peshawar. Later on, also, uh, a lot of... Strong women uh, has been my experience to meet with uh, women who have ex- exactly the same aspirations as mm-hmm. my sisters and uh, friends here would share. So I think it's coming underneath. And I mean, this book could not have been written without 25 years of experience with uh, many travels in the country, with uh, meeting with a lot of different people from potato farmers, both male and female, and uh, presidential candidates, parliamentaries, uh, activists women at crisis centers, and so on and so forth. It's it's not only about women, but it's an equal proportion in the book, and that is uh, rather a conscious choice, of course. Because there's been uh, in uh, the uh, sort of uh, rhetoric of uh, Western powers who have had their soldiers there now for 12 years, that we are there to liberate. And this is uh, what also Gertrude Spivak speaks about when she talks about white men liberating brown women from brown men. I mean, this is... a uh, an interesting quote in post-colonial theory that uh, I think uh, leaves a lot of truth to it also when we look at modern history. Well, the history of the British Empire has been in part written and oh, yeah. Clintock in terms of this whole notion, hasn't it? That's yeah, and you could also speak about the French in Northern Africa unveiling the women forcibly mm. and then the women having their spurious ways with the veil uh, in their resistance uh, against mm. the French uh, mm. colonials. So it goes in many ways. Um, you know, I think it's uh, this Western rhetoric of how they think they can liberate women leaves a lot to be expected, uh, to be wished for, because you can look at the invasion when it happened in 2001, if we want to look a little bit back in history, mm. where... For instance, for instance, the uh, Rawa video about the execution at Kabul Stadium, which was a very world-famous video mm. by then. I met with the ladies who to- told me how it was done, by the way. And these were revolutionary women, really. I mean, they were progressive. They were anti-US, anti-Soviet, anti-fundamentalist. They had very many enemies. But they were then uh, very much 
the friends of the ones who screened their video at a particular time between the 9-11 uh, and the 10-7, uh, which is the date of the invasion in Afghanistan. Then it was suddenly screened a lot. But when these same women uh, actually voiced their protest against the U.S. invasion and the Allied invasion after a while, uh, they were not heard. So then they were again marginalized. So they were back to the point of departure about marginalization of voices that you rather don't like or groups that you consider insignificant. They can reach significance at a certain point when it suits the politics and then they can disappear again. Absolutely. So this is uh, part of what I've been And what is the at. book called? Well, how do you translate? It's like a Norwegian saying, Afghanistan with no peace in sight. Ooh which is uh, very likely so. I remember sitting down with an um, Afghan uh, radical man uh, who is now working for the Asian Development Bank and has long left Afghanistan because he feels the hopelessness of the situation. He told us 25 years ago that, okay, when the Soviets leave Afghanistan, there's going to be civil war for perhaps 30 years. And, I mean, there was civil war, then Taliban came and made a kind of peace, but at a very, very high cost in most of the country. And uh, there was a war between them and the opposition, and that would have lasted if 9-11 hadn't happened. Mm. There's also a lot of if only in uh, the way we treat Afghan history. So we are not able to say what would have happened if the invasion hadn't happened either. But what we are trying to deal with is survival in the book, mainly. I mean, we are looking at the hopes, we ask people what are their hopes, we asked how do they survive, what do they envision about the future, all this. And I think this is part of the most important, let's say, uh, mission of journalism, if you like, mm. to, uh, to if you go abroad at least, or if you stay at home. I mean, it's about survival. I mean, what uh, what's the life prospects of people? How, what are their... Uh, resistance to uh, the uh, overwhelming forces that are shaping their futures in countries such as Afghanistan. That is a very powerful example. Could I ask your opinion, Elizabeth, on something related to that? Mm. It's an issue that I've raised with some other people, others have raised with me, mm -hmm. probably more actually, namely the distinction between, say, a journalist who is living in a place and has been for a very long time, mm -hmm. A classic British instance would be Robert Fisk mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. Lebanon yeah. and his coverage over 30 years of mm. the Arab world yeah. and, and uh, the Zionist world. Absolutely. Um, as opposed to, and apologies for using another Anglo-Irish example, as opposed to John Simpson mm -hmm. from the BBC mm -hmm. flying in to a trouble spot, in inverted commas, mm -hmm. uh, wearing a flak jacket and pronouncing on it, or as somebody in between, Christian Amanpour, mm. again flying in with a flak jacket uh, or body armour, but often to places where uh, she can speak the language and so on. So I just wanted your view on, if you like, those mm. different ways of doing journalism in relation to your comment about the need to look at ordinary people's mm. lives and mm. how they can survive and thrive. Why would I rather mention Lise Doucette when you say all this? Sure. <laughs> because she's been a lot to Afghanistan, actually. She speaks some of the Persian language, as I do also. And I see her communicating with ordinary people in some of her reportage. Of course, she doesn't get very much space in the BBC world, but she gets some. Right, right, fair enough. 
And why would I, uh, number two, associate back to the book by Edward Beer called uh, Anyone Been Raped That Speaks English? I'm sure you know that book. Yes, yes. Which is a situation from a country which should be more focused now, uh, the DR Congo, by then called the Belgian Congo, when the Belgians were on the way out and uh, Edward Beer himself in 1960 observes this uh, uh, very traditional uh, British journalist uh, walking past uh, some huddled uh, Belgian refugees wanting out of the country, asking them, anybody been raped and speaks English? Anybody been raped and speaks English? I mean, it was so hilarious, uh, I think, an experience for him yeah. that he made it the title of yeah. his book. Yeah. But apart from that, yes, I come back to your question. I think um, uh, when we teach this, we call uh, some of what you're talking about parachute journalism. Parachute journalism. Yes. But we shouldn't ignore then that uh, Christina Amanpour and John Simpson, they have their researchers on the ground. They're the face and the stand-up, but the researchers have been on the ground, and often they use so-called local journalists, that is, the people in Afghanistan, for example, or mm. in other countries who know the situation fairly well. They have many good helpers, but then again, it's their trademark. I mean, uh, mm. Christine Amanpour is sort of the face of the BBC, as is nah, as, uh, of the CNN, excuse me, as is John Simpson has been for the BBC. So, uh, I mean, they're good journalists, I guess, but uh, they've been promoted to a status where somebody has to do the work <laughs> beforehand, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah. And then comes uh, Robert Fisk in a different category, of course. Ooh, he does. Ooh. Because he's, uh, I think, a little bit like we also fallen in love with a particular place on this earth. Uh, or for him, the Middle East, but with a uh, centered in Lebanon, Palestine, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And... Uh, that is a serious love affair for him, and it's mm. a serious devotion, I guess, and mm. I think a duty, mm. too. Mm. And uh, I might feel a bit the same way, but uh, you need maybe to know that I've worked uh, in Afghanistan in another capacity, too, as a board member and now vice president of Norwegian Pen. So uh, with a colleague, I went there in 2003. I've also been there during Taliban, but that's a different story, to uh, look out uh, for writers and journalists who uh, would like to be members of the uh, of the Universal Pen family with the chapters in more than 100 countries by now. Mm -hmm. And after three days in the country, we sat together with 50 people who all wanted to join Afghan Pen. <laughs> wow. And it's been, uh, in spite of uh, rather tough circumstances, it's been uh, their success, not ours, their success. Mm -hmm. They've uh, done an amazing work. Have, we've raised some funds. They need that badly because the Ministry of Culture doesn't care about people like that. They're too outspoken. But they have their um, writer's house in Kabul now. They have uh, poetry readings every week. And they have a publishing company. They publish books in all Afghan languages. Mm. They have a board consisting of different language groups to avoid uh, rivalry and splits. So there are many positive aspects of that too. And... Uh, that has also taught me a lot, I mean, interaction with these writers. Mm. I must say, I, I'm a writer myself also, a little bit, a novelist. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's close to my heart to, to be able to communicate with these guys. Well, can I pick up on that a little bit? I want to ask you about time there during the Taliban's hegemony. Mm -hmm. But before we get on to that, I mentioned some television journalists. And I was thinking when you were speaking of Jamie Taraban as a very interesting one for NPR in Iraq. Uh, mm. She's no longer there, but as somebody who actually spoke Arabic, <laughs> you know, which was astonishing for anybody in the U.S. bourgeois media. She wasn't from the U.S. originally. I guess mm. that's how she was able to learn another language. Mm. But 
you've been mostly mentioning print journalists, and of mm -hmm. course Fisk is a print journalist, mm -hmm. conventional TV medium. Would so, never am I. Have on. so am I. <laughs> right, so here's the thing. Mm -hmm. What's the real journalism? I suspect for you it's print. No, I can't say that anymore. And, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> no, you, you can be truthful here. This is the no, part. No, 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 but not even. <laughs> no, I've just been with a group of master students uh, discussing uh, where to draw the lines uh, for the future journalism. Mm. Mm. We have sort of a notion here about journalism 2020. Oh, do you? Yeah, okay. I think you're visiting us uh, partly because of that. <laughs> okay, yes, I of course. So. <laughs> I knew all about it. But uh, just pretend for a second that I didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, but uh, it's, uh, it's uh, something with uh, in Norway, to be a journalist, uh, you know, it's not a profession like, for example, nursing or physiotherapy right. or teaching. You don't have to have an exam. You don't have to have a degree in journalism to be able to work as a journalist. And so it's a vulnerable position. And... Uh, to draw the line between uh, listen, journalism and blogging and uh, citizen journalism, all this is increasingly difficult. So this is something we're working on. But I guess that was not what you were talking about. But uh, true journalism has to do with being truthful to your sources, critical to your sources, ethical towards the vulnerable, all these things that are the sort of keywords and have been for a long time a keyword. And it doesn't matter whether it's TV or uh, print. You just have to be good at these things. Okay. I've got an example, not quite from journalism, but related. I once talked to Fred Wiseman, the mm -hmm. documentary filmmaker, yeah. mm -hmm. about his film, I think it's called Blind, but it's about life in an institution for children who are visually impaired. Mm -hmm. And one of the sequences in the film follows a little boy, who mm -hmm. would be, I would guess, three or four, mm -hmm. as suddenly out of eye shot, shall we say, or earshot, mm -hmm. of his caregivers, starts walking down some stairs. Mm -hmm. And the camera very, very slowly follows him. It's riveting. It's a bit like when Marilyn Monroe walks away from the camera in Niagara, mm -hmm. and it's whatever many steps she takes in her red dress, and her ass <laughs> slowly disappears exactly. the horizon. Yeah, yeah. But the tension that you feel watching this is palpable. Mm -hmm. And I asked Fred as well about a sequence in, I think it's called Law and Order, mm -hmm. where he follows around a bunch of police, two of whom start to strangle mm -hmm. a woman prostitute, sex worker, mm -hmm. it's in Kansas City, because they believe she's lying about, I think, an assault. Mm -hmm. And I asked him about this question of being ethical mm -hmm. with your sources. In other words, the two questions are, what's the point where you walk downstairs next to the child ready to catch him? Mm -hmm. What's the point where, and, he, and all this is filmed, you say to the police, I think you should stop that because I'm capturing all this on film. You could mm. kill this person. Mm. How far does it have to go? Mm. Uh, one uh, rather famous Norwegian journalist who has been a foreign correspondent as well, for TV, that is, and radio, <laughs> he um, was once uh, in a boat, a Norwegian boat, uh, outside the coast of Vietnam, and they were picking up... Uh, Vietnamese uh, refugees who were literally drowning. It must have been 1978 or something, after the U.S. had left for some time. And uh, he then converts himself from uh, witnessing to mm. giving a hand to yeah. one of the almost drowning people. Yeah. I mean, that's the borderline. I mean, when lives are at stake, yeah. then uh, I think the choice is fairly easy. Of course, there's a risk involved, too. I mean, the police might start to beat you up or might even shoot you. What if you've got room in your helicopter for five people and there are 205? 
I mean, I it's know an impossible, is, it's an impossible yeah, situation, isn't it? Mm. I'd rather speak about the Lampedusa experience. I've had some contact mm -hmm. with Fabrizio Gatti, who wrote this book, Bilal, about the uh, uh, flight from uh, Western Africa and across the Mediterranean to uh, mm. Italian shores. And Lampedusa, as you may know, is uh, fairly closely situated to the Tunisian shores. It's the southernmost island uh, of uh, Ita Italy. And uh, he speaks about how the Italian government at one point, after there's been an influx of refugees, either they were from uh, Mali, Eritrea, and some from Afghanistan as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, they come this way through Libya, actually, many of them. Uh, and uh, they were given orders to the boat people, I mean, the people, fishermen and others in Lampedusa, this uh, rather hospitable island to foreigners, that they were not to pick up people mm -hmm who were in uh, dire straits, uh, bad weather, drowning, boats uh, not being capsizing and so or capsizing and so on. But uh, the people of Lampedusa, they have uh, not followed those orders mostly. But there was a very, very bad uh, situation last autumn when more than 300 people drowned. Oh, good grief, I didn't know this. No, no, but uh, on the other half uh, part of the Atlantic, when probably it doesn't, but it was a rather big issue in Norwegian media. Mm. So we knew about it. And um, Fabrizio Gatti has himself done a part of investigative journalism as, I mean, um, posing as one of them, both in the flight situation and... As a in a camp in Lampedusa, mm -hmm. and as an illegal tomato picker in southern Italy, he's done it all, and he's written a fabulous book about it. And I think the ethics of ordinary people, like people of Lampedusa, who have now been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for their work, actually, with uh, with their hospitality and how they, at one stage when uh, Italy wouldn't take the refugees on from Lampedusa to the mainland. Um, there were more than six, I think it was, the number of refugees were double the number of uh, inhabitants of Lampedusa. They still sort of provided them and helped them. So, uh, I mean, journalists have a lot to learn from ordinary people's ordinary people. ethics, I yeah, think, yeah. at times. Can we go back to this Taliban question? Mm -hmm. Taliban, your time there spent when mm. they were running the yeah, whole of the country. those were three rather short well, visits. Well, most of the country, I guess, not yeah. the whole of the country. 90% about, yeah. in, at most. Yeah, no, uh, the first time I hitched a ride with an old friend of mine who was driving into Kabul, so I, and it was uh, it was a war situation. The Northern Alliance uh, bombarded Kabul to a certain extent, and uh, and I came in from the southeast and uh, was flabbergasted to see how the city looked because there had been four years of civil war between different uh, uh, Mujahideen factions before Taliban took over, and the city looked like a ruin. I mean, it was terrible. And you hardly saw any women on the streets. That was also flabbergasting. And this is, uh, talking about journalistic experience, this is the only time I've felt restrained as a journalist, as a female journalist, because I had a plan to go to the university. I'd heard that there was a, a rector there still sort of holding out, and I wanted to speak to some academic people about what's happening in this country. Uh, well, he had left for an NGO. That was the first thing. But the other thing was I wasn't allowed there because it was sort of women-free zone. So that was the restraint. There was a kind of weird situation. Schools were mostly closed, but not all. But uh, I found some women teaching young kids how to avoid mines, how to avoid be stepping on mines. You know, there are plenty of mines, wow. and there still are. So, but what I found nice uh, among these women who taught these children was their stubbornness. I mean, makeup and all these things were forbidden. 
But once these women uh, took off their tents and was inside the building, you could see lipstick, you could see nail polish, you could see red, nice shoes. I mean, as a kind of stubbornness, we don't want to comply to all these crazy rules. So um, also at that time, I experienced uh, religious uh, super dogmatism, but also uh, fear, but resistance, and uh, sometimes even humor, but quite a lot of fear, mm. I must say. It was... I felt uncomfortable because many people wouldn't speak to me, so they were so afraid. Because to have contact with foreigners was part of the bad thing. And you see that still today. Taliban punish Afghans who have contact with foreigners. That is uh, a kind of constant in their politics, which has been there. And of course it has roots also in experiences with Westerners um, and Northerners from the Russian time till now. So I think it started all with the uh, Soviet invasion, which was a pretty bad experience for the Afghans and continued till this day. So, so I don't blame only them. I blame, of course, sure. also the people who support these uh, crazy elements, uh, like the Saudi Arabia, who have been furnishing support to the Taliban, also Pakistani secret service, uh, the, the ISI have done. So it's a, Afghanistan is at the crossroads. Its uh, geopolitical situation is, has been their, let's say, uh, fate more or less, yeah. to be situated What between. the British called the great game. Yeah, 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 surely, yeah. Uh, oh, yes, we've been through these Anglo-Afghan Anglo wars, and there are lots of myth myths about them too, but that's a long story. Again. It's interesting, you know, that if somebody who knew something of British imperial history mm. had spoken to Blair, one wonders whether anything would have been different or not at all. They didn't seem to want to speak to people who spoke the relevant languages, mm. who actually knew the region in either Britain or the United States. It was one of the shocking things in the United States at that time. I remember it all too well. You know, I lived in New York. Mm. I, I witnessed the towers falling, people mm. jumping mm. to their deaths. Yeah. And within half an hour, the only thing that most of us could think was, Millions of people are going to have their lives destroyed by the United States because of what just happened. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Millions of people. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that uh, collection of short films uh, by the uh, producer Alain Brigand, which is called 9-11. Yeah. He invited 11 filmmakers to make a short film each, mm. uh, with a topic, in one way or another, free to their choice, about 9-11. And the only condition was all films should be 11 minutes and 9 seconds. Ah. And one of the films, actually the first in the sequence, is uh, by the young Iranian filmmaker called Samira Makhmalbaf. I think she was 22 at the time. And she makes this film about Afghan refugee children in a camp in Iran. And the teacher who goes to collect them, uh, some of them are making uh, bricks, for example, they're doing child labor. Mm. And some others are out playing and she collects them all to go to school because she's going to tell them that something terrible has happened in the United States. And they don't have a clue where it's the United States anyway. Yeah. And they don't have a clue about uh, skyscrapers, that kind of buildings. So she points at the chimney of the brick, brick kiln outside this uh, provisionary school that they have and says, well, it's something like this. And then she asks them to keep silent for one minute in honor of the people who died in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, she has this small blackboard. She can hold it by a hand and she draws a clock there and puts her finger slowly around as if uh, it was indicating the minutes. And the kids can't keep quiet. They're about six-year-old. You can see they're lacking the front teeth. And all are amateurs. 
this. And uh, they start discussing, no, this is not the biggest thing that happened. Two men fell in a well nearby, and they both died. No, only one of them died. And then they go on to, can God take lives? No, he can only create lives. And these small philosophical questions. It's all in that film. Fantastic. And it's also, I mean, the whole sequence of films shows that, yes, people have uh, huge grief and respect for what happened in the United States, but they see the world from another place. And, uh, well, not to uh, put too in much into it, but one of the books that I've made together with a colleague is called To See the World from Another Place. And that maybe also corresponds a little bit with Edward Said's contrapuntal reading. Mm. He was a musician, as you know, more mm. than me. And uh, that's why I used this concept, I'm sure. But uh, to be able to perceive a situation not only from the conventional inside, but also mm. from another place. Another of the films there is from... Um, Burkina Faso, where a young man who has been forced to leave school to provide for the family sells newspaper, and suddenly there's a newspaper with the head of Osama bin Laden on the front page, and he sees Osama lookalike in Ouagadougou, the capital there. And he gets his friends to chase this man, and of course it's not uh, him, but still they believe. And uh, the last scene is where you see them, oh, uh, this Osama-like person is flying out to Ouagadougou, and they say, oh, please come back, because they want the award. Of $25 million. I mean, so the perspectives of even such a grand catastrophe varies uh, according to where you are, and this uh, artistically is proven by the sequence of films very much, I'd say. Uh, yes, great you mentioned Saeed at that moment. Of course, he was music critic for The Nation magazine, right. and he was a great friend of Daniel Barenboim's. Mm -hmm. There's actually a book they did together yes, of conversations yes. about music, right, mm -hmm. where you see this mm -hmm. at play wonderfully. Of course, Barenboim is somebody who's really encouraged Palestinian children to be yeah. involved in many of his projects. Mm. I wanted to change tack for a moment, if I may, Elizabeth, to talk about climate. Have we got time for a yeah, little bit have. of that? Because yes, yes. Um, maybe just another 10 minutes? Yeah, do you yeah, have, sure, do you sure. have that time? That's all right, yeah. Because um, what I'd love to do mm. is to talk a little bit about your work on climate and then a little bit about your work as a creative writer, if I can mm. use that expression. Okay. Is yeah. that okay? Yeah, that's all right. All right. When it comes to climate, uh, since 2008, I've been part of a global network of researchers who have uh, looked, in, who has looked into uh, the coverage of the climate COPs, as they're called, the Conference of Parties, which means the climate summits. Uh, they go every year, uh, usually in November, December, and the last one was in Warsaw in November last year. And uh, the one that everybody's expecting to deliver something positive is the one in Paris in 2015. So we'll probably go on until then. But we started monitoring the media coverage of uh, the uh, one in Bali in 2007. And we've uh, analyzed the coverage of every second one since then. We cannot do very many media with so many researchers from so many countries. So we do two newspapers in each country for approximately three weeks, which is a little bit pre-conference, a little bit during, a little bit after. So that is sort of the methodology, maybe the boring part. So then the juicy part <laughs> is what we find. And uh, we find, for example, that uh, it's very politically oriented. I mean, science, uh, the science who sort of is behind uh, these summits and uh, with the, their more and more increasingly certain evidence of human-induced global warming, is sidetracked much by the politicians. Yeah. And secondly, we find that uh, women are outnumbered by far by men as sources here. That is maybe an important finding as well. But thirdly, I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, the summits are treated as uh, 
uh, although it's a fantastic opportunity for uh, meeting people from all over the world. I mm. mean, I, I've been to one day summits myself to see. Uh, that was the one in Durban, South Africa. Well, I, I mean, I could easily, if I wanted to, as a journalist, I wasn't there as a journalist then, uh, interview uh, all the leaders from the small island states of the Pacific, for example, who are eligible to drown if, if, the, if the ocean level is, uh, continues to rise. But very little of that is done. What we find is a rather domesticated kind of coverage. You bring it all back home, to quote Bob Dylan. <laughs> and uh, so it means that... Uh, very many of the sources that journalists use when they're out there with an enormous amount of possibilities are still their own. And I guess that's what expected of them from the traditional media, that they want to, to hear what the Norwegian prime minister said when he was there, if he was there. Or they want to know what uh, the uh, Norwegian expertise or the Norwegian NGOs say to criticize the prime minister. <laughs> and that's uh, basically much of the framing of the coverage. You also find a huge variety between nations uh, having to do with what's going on. For example, Egypt is one of the nations we have there. We have researchers from all over the world, about 21 now. But, uh, for example, in Egypt, there's so much going on at the national level that they hardly care much about it. And then, of course, is Bangladesh at the other end, also a developing country, also where a lot, uh, a lot is at stake when it comes to climate change. Country of a floodplain. Yeah, very much coverage there. Mm. Indonesia, fairly much too which is also part of our network. And uh, then again, we've, what's been interesting about this how is to look from the Norwegian angle then. We are in an ironic situation being both a big oil exporter and at the same time a big donor to preserve the rainforest in Brazil and Indonesia, for example, which is kind of a conflicting situation. Uh, I've been co-writing an article which was published some years back calling Norway a tainted hero. Hero. Yeah, I think it's a rather adequate title for it. Now, there are many aspects to this, but uh, what we are at is to try to find out how is journalism facing this, But because we call climate change the global challenge for journalism, actually. I think it's fair to say that. It's not going to go away. It's going to be there, and that's another challenge, something that is perpetual. How much does journalism care about that, for example? And uh, how much will they connect the dots between, for example, extreme weather and climate change, when researchers, to an ex well, to more of a degree, do so, there was this extreme weather report from the UN panel of climate change last year, uh, saying that there is a connection, not between all dots, but at least sure. there are tendencies there. So all these are uh, questions we're working with, and we'll continue to work with them. We've published two novel, no, novels now. <laughs> yeah, we're going Ooh, to no, continue no. to. It's the truth. <laughs> now, we've published two volumes so far, both anthologies with contributions from all these different wonderful mm. people. And yeah. uh, it's lovely to be in such a network, again, with people from master level upwards to uh, professors. And we, uh, we call ourselves a kind of a family. And what are the names of the books? Uh, well, Elizabeth the, has written and edited so many. I'm surprised <laughs> no, no, no. she can remember. Uh -huh. The last one is called Media Meets Climate, The Global Challenge of Journalism, 2012. The so, previous one. Great cover, by the way. Oh, nice. And the previous one is called uh, Global Climate Local Journalisms, because that is more of a country report thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. And I wanted to ask you about your, in a sense, creative writing life, mm. not to suggest that this other work isn't creative, but... Mm. Yeah, it is, to a certain extent, but not to the same level. <laughs> no, yeah, well, uh, I started off as a novelist with the first one in 1994, and that 
was situated uh, in an Afghan environment, uh, but in Pakistan, from which I had one and a half years experience. Mm. But it was not about me. <laughs> it was uh, rather about how uh, something considered as a liberation movement, Mujahideen, which they would call the Afghan resistance, uh, can turn against their own. Because I discovered a story that I couldn't print as a journalist because I couldn't verify it. And that was about some Mujahideen uh, parties having mm. prisoners in their refugee camps and treating them badly, even killing some. And I knew for a fact that the most extreme of these people actually assassinated their opponents. So uh, part of a way to get that out was to, to write a novel about that and a lot of other things. But it's also, uh, I tend to include French people in all novels. It's also about... Well, they're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so it's also about a, a French veteran journalist who has had some uh, pretty bad experience in Afghanistan and who is a friend of the uh, main female character and who uh, sort of converts into Islam and, uh, and the tension of this mm. and his work continues. This, again, could say have to do with how much do you identify with what kind of victims. And the name of this novel? Uh, Until the Fall of Kabul. And then the, there is another one uh, with the, where the action takes place in India. I've lived there for a year as well. And that has to do with uh, building a big dam in northern India. <laughs> and uh, a lot of, uh, well, sort of... Uh, Call it environmental resistance in a sense, mm. but not only. It's also about mystery and it's about uh, uh, strong personalities and the Gandhian tradition vanishing from the site of India. It's uh, it's much there as show off still, and it's there at the village at the village level. But in politics, it's uh, it becomes symbolism more than anything else. And then the three next ones, well, they're about various aspects. Refugees, for example. One that takes part partly in Taliban-organized uh, Afghanistan, actually, part of it, and the rest elsewhere. And uh, one takes part in uh, western part of northern Africa. I, I, it's transnational novels. I don't think I can write anything else. I don't know why. <laughs> so I have a plan for a new one, but I don't have the time for the moment. I think academia sucks a little bit. Was that a bad thing to say? No, not at all. <laughs> Why not? I don't know how to say it another way. That's in other words, it's, it's, it sort of uh, it pulls you out of other plans, more or less. Mm. But mm. I've started now having a plan at least to read more fiction. So, Well, I read Alice Munro, uh -huh. of course. And I, I read a new, very nice novelist called Attica Locke, who is uh, African-American, uh, well, not really police novel, but close to that genre. She's really powerful because she relates to the past, both of the uh, civil movement, uh, civil rights movement, and she relates also to slavery and the last, and the last of her two novels. It's a new um, discovery for me, and uh, she's rather inspiring. Wonderful. And what are future plans? You mentioned this novel that you've mm. got in your mind. What about future research? Uh, back to marginalization, which is a constant theme, uh, more environmental issues? Climate is going to go on. Yes. So that's uh, until 2015. And uh, also I've been approached by a commission to do some work, but that will be uh, through uh, cooperation with research assistants on the uh, representation of the uh, Roma people of Norway. Mm. But here you have to distinguish. We have two groups. One is what uh, one uh, conventionally calls the gypsies and the other one is called Tatars. 
and those were here in Norway centuries before the first uh, Roman gypsies came along. And uh, it's a history of uh, sterilization of women, of depriving these groups of their livelihood. There are some thousands of people in Norway lived here long. And this history has never really been written in full, although it has been many good attempts. And now somebody wants us to take part in uh, the press history of this. And, uh, so I'll probably have a hand in that. So that's marginalization, yes, and oppression. Absolutely. Well, it's a remarkable story. We could go on for a lot longer because mm -hmm. you've only touched on so many themes, mm -hmm. each of which could make a podcast in and of itself. I'm hoping that perhaps after the 2015 climate meetings, mm -hmm. you might come back into the pod and give us an update and also tell us about the reception of the new book on Afghanistan that you and your husband mm. have written and perhaps tell us whether or not you found time to write that, what, fifth novel? Mm, sixth. Sixth. I've lost count. <laughs> I really hope. I sincerely hope uh, if I still go on having a moderate to good health, go on doing my yoga exercises. <laughs> And uh, I think it's both a weakness and a strength to cover many issues. I sometimes feel the lack of concentration can be a flaw. So, uh, but on the other hand, you get a more holistic approach to uh, the field. But uh, I would wish for the future to be maybe slightly more concentrated and uh, less can be more. <laughs> a nice way of putting it. Thank you very, very much for being in the pod today.